Work is so closely tied to our identity. And in the past year, those parts of our identities have been upended. Millions of Canadians are without work during the pandemic. Some are fortunate enough to be working from home and others still go into work every day. And while we know that the economy and with it jobs will recover, we don't exactly know what work will look like after COVID-19. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is Why. It's no understatement to say that the nature of a lot of work done around the world irrevocably changed when the coronavirus pandemic hit. When we first went into lockdown in March, I was in an administrative role. I was running my department. And so I was responsible for managing the shift of 50 faculty to online teaching within three days. That's David Zweig, professor of organizational behavior at the University of Toronto. He studies how people work. But before we go too much further, let's look at the trends that were already in place before March. Well, certainly one of the bigger trends that we were seeing in organizations and in, in, in workspaces themselves is that shift to open office spaces, shared desks, hoteling, hot desking, whatever you want to call it. Now, obviously, uh, that's going away um, and it may never return. And, you know, it, it was, you know, some of the shine was starting to wear off on that kind of method of Organizing work, uh, uh, as appealing as it might have been to some, really what it meant was that the organization saved costs in terms of office space um, and furniture. And it was, uh, you know, a lot of people found it very distracting and difficult to work in that kind of environment. So the shine was wearing off. And I think COVID basically, um, you know, probably finished off that trend. We might actually see uh, a reversal back to, um, you know, cubicle type uh, office spaces or, or you know, proper walls or whatever it might be in order to allow for sufficient social distancing. Yeah, and the, you, you mentioned cubicles. Those came in, if I recall correctly, in the, was it in the 50s? Yeah, uh, and, that's right. and yeah, and, and so this is, you know, as you said, it was individual office spaces, then cubicles and mm-hmm. to this, toward this open office space. And now with the need for, or the, 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 the evidence that, uh, you know, having a properly ventilated uh, and isolated spaces for people to work. It means individual offices with walls. Uh, that mm-hmm. seems to be what the trend is going towards. But I, I'm wondering if, um, since the since since people went into the you know the initial lockdown in the spring, um, yeah. what the um, what you're hearing or what you've seen from corporations as far as the use of office space and and whether or not they may continue to have it. Because, I mean, they they sign on to these multi-year leases. What are they doing with this space? I mean, if you go back and think about what we've all gone through, it's been this huge social experiment where we've had this seismic shift in the work-from-home landscape um, where before, you know, some people engaged in some remote work, you know, maybe one or two days a week, and that was tolerated by organizations um, but people were pretty, pretty reluctant and suspicious around it, whether it would, it would harm productivity. Um, and, you know, you even had some organizations who had work from home policies that, you know, like Yahoo, that revoked them uh, because they were seeing issues. But then we had this, this event, this seismic shift where everyone's working from home. For the most part, we've seen that people are maintaining their level of productivity. And if you talk to a lot of people, you find that people are saying they're working harder than ever before. Um, which is an issue as well because we're, you know, we're blurred. We blur the lines completely between our work and home lives, 
it's so easy for us to just, you know, get up and go straight to work. We don't have that buffer of the commute anymore um, before and after work to, to uh, get ready for work and then disconnect from work. So we, we continue to work and we're working harder and we've got to be really worried about that in terms of mental health and stress and burnout. Now, what does the future look like for, uh, for you know, work? I think it, it'll depend on, you know, whatever an organization establishes as their work from home policy. There might be a broad policy. So for example, one of the big banks might set a policy for the organization, but I think there's gonna be individual differences in different functional areas of the organization. And even at the level of, you know, what your particular leader wants. So, uh, you know, your leader might want everyone back in the office and will apply, you know, force or pressure to get everyone to conform to that. Others may be fine with continuing with the work from home arrangements that exist currently. So there's going to be a lot of back and forth. There's going to be a lot of negotiation. Um, and there may be a lot of movement as people, you know, move around to, to organizations or workplaces that fit with what they want in terms of their uh, working arrangements. Now, again, what that means for real estate, we'll see. I mean, if you think about what we talked about uh, a few seconds ago around, you know, the shift away from open spaces, this might mean that organizations need more space rather than less in order to provide sufficient space for everyone in a safe manner. So we don't know. We're speculating. It's going to depend on a lot of different variables. I don't think we're going to see the end of downtown cores as the, as we know them. We will see a return to the to the workplace. It may just not be as as uh, you know as it was pre pandemic. So David, with that blurring of home and and work lines and increased flexibility, is that flexibility necessarily a bad thing for organizations? Well, the flexibility, um, you know, what this has also done is it pushed a little more autonomy in a sense towards individual uh, employees. It allows us, we have the freedom now, a little more freedom for the majority of our jobs to say, you know, I'll get all my work done, um, but I can decide when I'm getting my work done. And if we can manage that in a balanced way without sacrificing our, our health, um, that's a great thing because autonomy is really good for us. We, we like autonomy. Uh, we like to have freedom in deciding how we want to do things. Where organizations have to respond effectively and leaders in, in essence is understanding that, you know, being okay with that level of autonomy that people now have and changing their expectations or even how they measure performance. It's not that someone needs to be available from nine to five anymore and you need to like surveil them to make sure that they're working or they're online. It's that your, your performance measures change to fit with this new reality that people are meeting deadlines, they're achieving the quality targets, and it doesn't really matter if they're doing it from nine to five or they've chosen to do it from, you know, eight to four or whenever it might be. We're hearing now, and I think it was Bill Gates who recently said that in-person meetings are, are no longer going to be the gold standard for conducting business. Do you agree with, with that statement? Um, you know, there's a lot of advantages to face-to-face. -to -face. I mean, we, we can recreate it as best as possible through, you know, these technologies that we have. But there's a lot to be said for, you know, a lot of what we uh, express and what we think and what we feel comes through in body language. And that's truncated right now because you can't really see what my hands are doing 
Um, you can't see my posture, more or less. You can read my face right now. You can read my facial expressions, hear my tone, but it's a less rich medium than face-to-face. -face. So we are losing a lot of that, um, a, a lot of that information that we generally used to get from interacting with each other face-to-face -face and reading our body language and our cues. Now, you know, we often believe body language more than we believe the words that are coming out of people's mouths, right? Because we can most of us can consciously control the words that come out of our mouths, but we can't always control body language. So that's a very good indicator of what people are thinking and feeling. And we lose that with um, distributed uh, technologies. And we lose that by not having face-to-face. -face. So is the face-to-face is the -face meeting dead? I think it may be uh, not dead, there will be times and opportunities where face-to-face -face will be necessary, but of course, not as much as before. So would it be fair to say that you uh, think that travel for work-related reasons um, mm -hmm. is, is not dead anymore, but will maybe be truncated, will be reduced? Yeah, I think it's gonna, there's gonna have to be a really, really good reason for, for travel. Um, given that we've all adjusted to not traveling and conducting our work and engaging in, in our work without travel. Yeah, and so uh, there may be the really good reasons for why you want to meet with someone face-to-face. -face. Maybe it's to establish a relationship off, right off the bat to understand, you know, get a better sense of who they are and who you're, de you're dealing with in business. Maybe it's to close a huge deal and, you know, whatever is necessary. But other than that, yeah, of course travel will be truncated. What about education? What are your thoughts on yeah. on, on on education uh, and yeah. how that will be presented? You know, of, of the different levels, you know, grade school, uh, high yeah. school, post secondary. Um, I can, you know, I can talk about our own, my own experience, my wife and I, with our two young children uh, mm. when school shut down, um, and it was generally awful. Um, it, it wasn't effective at all. Um, you know, and, and I know things have improved and, you know, virtual teachers have worked very hard to make virtual schooling much, much more uh, engaging. But, you know, if the first lockdown is any indication, it wasn't great. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I was in charge of managing um, the rapid changeover to online learning in my department with 50 faculty and thousands of students. And we managed it, um, you know, we, we did our very best to make the shift in a very short period of time. And I think now that it's become, you know, this is our existence and it will be for the next few semesters, we've definitely found ways to adapt quite nicely to online teaching and, and, and online learning. Um, that being said, I hope this isn't the status quo. I hope this doesn't uh, stay. Uh, the way that we deliver because, uh, you know, first of all, it's a lot of work to make online learning uh, engaging and capture students' attention and make it have the same value as a face-to-face -face, uh, interaction. Um, and you can do it, but it's very difficult. Um, uh, but, you, you know, fundamentally, uh, being, in a, being in a classroom with students, seeing their, again, their body language, how they're reacting to what you're saying, you know, knowing when you have a student who needs you to stop and explain something again, or to give another example, or allowing for group work, or uh, that kind of, you know, um, work that allows them to take what we've, we've taught them and integrate it. That's really important. 
So, you know, there might be some university administrators somewhere who see the benefits in terms of expenditures of online delivery as being more cost effective, but that's a very short-sighted view. Um, you know, we can integrate online learning more, uh, but there's no doubt that students benefit more from in-person learning. It seems to me that there's an opportunity to uh, allow for a school to embrace further of that online education that was happening before the pandemic and offer more courses online um, for folks who can't be in the classroom. Um, if there's reduced costs of doing that, do you see online tuitions being maybe more cost effective for the student than in person? Um, yeah, there might be opportunities for that. And certainly, um, you know, in terms of accessibility, it could be much better for, for particular students, depending on the situations. But, you know, if I was advising my own child right now, whether to, uh, you know, if they had a choice of going online or in person, I would certainly advise them. Uh, that they would be better off attending classes in person. What are your thoughts on gig work after the pandemic? Well, I, I absolutely see it continuing and it's going to grow, um, you know, particularly now that, you know, if we, we get to the point where no one is going back to the workplace, um, you know, why you know, we're not going to be limited by having employees who are, you know, located near us. We could hire people from around the world. And, this, and that was happening, of course, and this will certainly accelerate the trend of that happening. You know, the question is for uh, the same questions that existed around gig work before still exist around, you know, what kind of benefits people have in this, what kind of, you know, how they, how they manage the fact that their work is not that secure. They don't know how long things are going to last and that sense of insecurity around that. So the same issues aren't, haven't gone away. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in fact, more of us are actually experiencing it now, given given the situation. David, I was also wondering, how do you think the study of organizational behavior will look back on this? How will the textbooks be written after this pandemic? Well, you know, again, this was a huge social experiment. We're still learning about some of the outcomes of all of this. I think it'll depend a lot on what the, the default is after this is over. Um, whether this will be considered, you know, this, this you know, year-long blip in how we manage work, or if this is turns out to be the new reality of how we actually work. If it is the new reality, this raises huge questions um, about all of our assumptions around how an organization develops a culture and shares that culture and that shared understanding of what this place is like with people who have never stepped foot into the organization. Um, so that's huge. So how do you socialize people in this kind of environment? How do you mentor people? How do you lead them effectively? It's going to fundamentally change the way that we as leaders interact with our followers, which it already has, and how we, you know, how we lead them. Um, and for followers, you've got to figure out, well, how am I going to interact with this leader that I've never met in person, perhaps? Um, and you know, I only see him on a screen or see her on a screen. And how am I going to be led by this person? So, you know, this is quite going to question everything. Um, you know, even my own research where I study deviant behavior at work. So the bad things that people do at work. Um, you know, I'm right now looking at, you know, that this phenomenon where people steal ideas and take credit for other people's ideas. Well, how how is that different now that we're not co-located? Does it still happen? Right. Or does it happen differently? And so these are questions we're all going to be asking about all the things that we've, we've 
fundamentally taken for granted. But ultimately, you know, the basic theories around organizational behavior are still going to hold. What we really care about is how fairly I'm treated. Um, am I getting the same amount as someone who's doing a similar job to me? Uh, does my company treat me well? Uh, do I get along with my boss or my leader? All of these things have, are not going to change. So a lot is obviously changing, but a lot of the fundamental things that make our work life what they are, are still going to be there. The questions around workplace culture I find really fascinating yeah. because recently, a few years ago, I, I changed cities and I changed corporations and yeah. different offices, so very different uh, cultures between them. And even mm -hmm. within the, the the corporation that I work for, Chorus Entertainment, they uh, between cities, they have different uh, uh, sure. cultures within the building. Do you see uh, the, assuming that this is the, the, the new normal, do you see uh, more companies uh, establishing uh, a universal culture across all of the, if they've got multiple offices in multiple cities, do you see them trying to establish a universal culture across all of them? Or is oh. there still that opportunity for the local uh, yeah. local aspects of those culture, local expressions of those culture to come out? I mean, every organization wants to believe that they have a one, one unifying culture. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that subcultures exist within organizations um, and they will continue to exist because there's going to be unique either geographical or other factors that influence the expression of the culture um, in different locations, right? So that'll continue to exist. Often, you know, it depends. The culture is formed by the senior leaders of the organization. Um, so, you know, for example, Chorus might have its, I think they're, they're in Toronto, right? Headquartered in Toronto, the, yes. The culture that's expressed in the Toronto office of Chorus, but then you have leaders, um, you know, putting their own twist in Calgary, for example, about how that culture is expressed, which creates a, you know, might create a bit, little bit of difference. Ultimately, there's going to be a lot of congruence, but, you know, subcultures do form and that will continue to happen. And if, assuming this is the new normal, those subcultures will likely uh, form over, you know, distributed, like over video conferencing or, or, well, or chat. That might yeah. be the only way, right? Which the, the issue is like, how do we, you know, how is you, to, you as a new employee of this organization get a sense of what it's like to work around here when you know your exposure a lot of where you learn that is just simply being in that space seeing what goes on with others um, seeing what the norms are understanding what the values are you may not be getting that through a zoom meeting right you will get mm -hmm. some of that but it's going to be a lot more difficult yeah, a lot more difficult to catch those those nonverbal cues and even some of the unofficial chatter around the, around the various meetings. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, and we learn a lot just by watching what's going on around us, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that helps us understand what we do here and what we don't do here, what gets punished, what gets rewarded, mm -hmm. and so we are losing out on that. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, stay home, and wear a mask. We'll see you soon.